So we're in a, a series, and we're gonna. You're looking at the chairs up front, and and uh, you've got a handout coming with a little card, and uh, the little card is very special. I'd like you to be thinking of a name of somebody you know that's not saved, uh, somebody you know that doesn't know Christ. You know they're maybe they're searching, maybe you're hoping that they'll come to Christ, but um, if you the name of that person, I'd like you to write on that card. Now we're gonna put that card. We're going to share that card with each other in a little bit. If you don't want to share a name, that's fine. If you want to put a person's initials or uh, make up an alias if you have to, if you're you know, afraid somebody here might know them and offend them or whatever, uh, that would offend them that they got called out or whatever. I don't know how that works, but I just know that lost people need prayer and support from the church. And uh, I've got a card here uh, with three different names on it of people I've been working with for a number of years um, to share the gospel with and help and so I want everybody here that's willing um, to just write a name down of somebody that you love somebody you know it might might even be somebody just a neighbor or a friend or co-worker kind of thing and you just know they're lost and you know that their eternity is not settled and you'd like to see them settled and uh, and we're gonna use those cards in just a few minutes so just write write it down on a piece of write it down on that card and then you'll probably notice the notes are a little different today because I don't want you to take notes as much as I want you to listen and kind of understand the concept of today. Uh, We've been talking about how we should live as if Christ was crucified yesterday, rose today, and is coming back tomorrow. Uh, It sort of brings the immediacy and the urgency of the gospel uh, straight to us. And so uh, I want us to think in terms of that today and how that's going to work. Um, and if I could get one of the guys to cut the lights on back there, that'd be awesome. So the ushers missed it on the way out. So um, let's let's get the light, this, the your your seating lights up, so it would help you. But when when the resurrection occurred, and I'm gonna we're gonna be really different today. I'm gonna move. So move right down here with you, because when the resurrection occurred, everything. And I mean everything in the disciples' minds had to change, dramatically change. For, for us, it's like a storyline. You go, okay, Christ's been explaining that He's the one. The Old Testament explains that He's the one. Christ explaining that He's the one. He dies. They don't really understand that. He's raised, and now they get it. But I'm telling you, what they got was nothing like what you and I think they got. And it changed everything for them. And I'm going to give you a taste of that today uh, as we talk about it. Uh, when Jesus, when, when Peter found the tomb empty, Mary of Magdalene we talked about last week found the tomb empty, um, everything had to change in their whole, I mean the foundation of what they understood and believed and thought uh, took a dramatic turn. And that's important for us because I think in our culture today, um, I think as Christians we're looking at our culture sort of as an enemy to us, as a, as a problem, and we get all anxious about it, and a lot of churches are huddling together to, you know, ooh and ah about the bad old culture out there. Um, and the culture in this generation, that the first century culture, was 50, 100 times worse than what ours is. Um, we think ours is bad, and we see a lot of things sliding downhill, and we had some, you know, good years as a country where it sort of was moving in a sort of a revival movement and a lot of you know Jesus things were happening and all that. And now it's all slipping away from us and we feel like somehow that's terrible. But I'm just here to tell you 
when you see the picture I give you today, I hope it'll hope it'll bring you to a new place. And uh, and hang on to that card. Everybody did a lot of you write a name. If you wrote a name down, write it, hold your hand up. You don't if you don't have to, by the way. It's not like it absolutely have to. You know, better students. Okay. So but uh, the resurrection is very shocking on several fronts, and we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to tell you about a book I'm beginning to read. I've read the overview of it, and it's by a guy named Victor uh, Frankel, um, who is a Holocaust survivor. And uh, he, he wrote a book called Man's Searching for, Me- Man's Searching for Meaning. And it, the first part of the book is about how he himself endured the, the internment camp and, and the Holocaust camp he was in. And the rest of the book is about the people he was with. Um, and it's a phenomenal uh, reading. Uh, highly recommend it. He's a, he's a Jewish psychologist. He was a therapist, a Jewish therapist before he was... You remember the, the movie? Everybody knows the movie, The Sound of Music. The hills are alive. Remember that whole deal? And, and the Von Tramp family singers and all them get out over the mountaintop because the nuns all, you know, break the cars and take off the distributor caps and all that and let, the, let, them, let them go free, right? And they went over the hill and they're all safe. Well, a whole bunch of people didn't do that. They stayed in Austria. <laughs> and this is his family. His family was captured uh, by, the, by the Germans and put, for, for a year he spent with his wife and children and his sisters and his mom and dad all of them as a family were taken into this ghetto uh, where they were sort of uh, prison workers. They were sort of like labor, a hard labor camp. And then eventually they were moved to the prison camp uh, Dachau, which is one of the famous ones. I've been to Auschwitz, and that was enough to rattle me forever. Um, but on a mass scale, the Germans were eliminating uh, millions of people at a time. And the people that they eliminated got in trains willingly and were trained into those communities and then ultimately trained into those camps behind the doors. Um, Andy Andrews wrote a book uh, a few years ago that I'd recommend you read called, um, I think the title something like, How to Kill, How to Kill uh, a Million People. Um, it's a very interesting title, but it's, it's a t- it, it describes how Germany, ha- they never drew weapons against the Jews. They just put them in... They just made promises to them, got everybody's mindset going in a certain direction, and all of a sudden your whole family's loading up and following the orders um, to your death. And so this Victor Frankel has has been a part of that and was caught up in that. And and uh, his story of survival is that he, in, in some sense, for, for the millennials, this will help you, in some sense because he was such a, uh, a nerd and an academia guy, um, he survived on that because when he got into the camp itself, um, what he started doing by his training was after the workday was over and everybody was back in the deal, he was having little therapy sessions with people and taking extensive notes. Um, like like he took crazy amount of notes on the individuals he was talking through and helping through. And uh, his book is about some of that. But he 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 met with people. He He began to figure out how are you handling this situation now on a on a human human scale in all of humanity there's never been a thing like those camps i don't know if you ever researched any of that or thought through that but millions of people willingly got on trains and got on buses and followed the instructions that led them to their death and then they were they realized they were entrapped in it and then they're just trapped and and so he he has a 
psychological perspective on all of it that's that's wonderful. But he said basically there were five five or six different responses people would have. You know, obviously there were some people that were horribly angry and bitter in the camp, and uh, they they've they it all clicked after they got there what's happened and how cruel these uh, Germans are and how bad the world is and how mean God is or whatever it is their, their bitterness and their anger goes everywhere. And he said those people, you know, were no fun to be around, even in the camps. You didn't, their own people didn't want to be around them. And then even the guards, they were the ones that kind of eliminated early because they're just so bitter and angry. He said some people had an apathy about it that would, it was like they were just in, they, they had to make their self numb. And they became indifferent to what was happening. Now I want you to think about how we respond to our culture as I'm talking about this. Because um, he said some people just get numb. They're like, ah, oh, it's, it doesn't matter. No big deal. You know, okay. You know, and they're watching these terrible, watching hundreds of people a day be taken into these ovens and killed. And they're, and they're having to, you know, carry bodies out of their bunks that have died overnight from starvation and all that. And they're just indifferent to it all. It's like they, they don't care if it's a, you know, a child died or a mother passed away and left some children. None of that's bothering them. They just become indifferent, right? I think a lot of our Christians have some of that in them. That they become indifferent to our culture. And then... You know, he said, then some people would go to the extreme of sort of denial, like this isn't really happening, this is a bad dream, one day I'm going to pinch myself, wake up, and it'll all be over kind of thing. And they lived in denial, uh, which means they kind of blocked everything. They started shutting down all their emotions and, and blocking everything, and that was, that was really unhealthy for them. Uh, some people did a, a sort of a fantasy world, he said, where they would uh, imagine their life after the camp and like, you know, we're going to be rescued in a few months and, you know, the, some army is going to come in and take care of all this mess, these crazy Germans and, and we're going to be rescued. And so when that happens, I'll get back together with my family and my wife's in another camp or my children in another camp. We'll all be reunited and we'll have a happy life and a career and all that kind of stuff. And so they began to fantasize about that to the point of their fantasy in their mind was reality. And he said, those people, when something would go wrong in camp, like they find out from somebody that one of their children had been killed, so it doesn't fit the fantasy anymore. The fantasy just blows up in their head. He said they'd lose their minds. He said some, some people literally physically got so sick they would die because it's obviously a nutritional issue anyway. And so once their body begins to panic about all that or shut down emotionally, um, they would die. And so it's a fascinating study. But here's what he said was the key. He and his sister were the only two that made it through there. His, his wife and children didn't make it. His parents didn't make it. But he and his sister made it all the way through and... Um, he said they, there was a group of people that lived with a hope that transcended circumstances. Think about that phraseology. He said, I found a group of people that lived with a hope that transcended circumstances. A hope that transcends circumstances. Man, that's a rich, rich way to understand that. And he said there were people that had this hope. They, they saw their life as a storyline with meaning. And so even a bad thing had to have some meaning or purpose into it because there's a, there's a life that I'm living that's got purpose and meaning and my hope is that all this is important somewhere down the road. It means something. And, uh, and he said that that was really important for people that, that survived. He actually went on after it was all over. He got all his notes out of his mattress and stuff. He went back and traced down all the people that lived through it and began to evaluate how they were doing in, in society. I mean, he was really into what he was doing there. 
But here's this unique understanding that'll that'll bring you to the point I wanted to make this morning as an introduction. The understanding of what he found that had happened at the prison camp was this. The prison camp shrunk everything in life down to just a few few days or a few weeks. It literally is a concentration camp that literally concentrated your life and and squeezed it. All the things that could happen in life were happening in, not in ye- decades like for us. You know, in the next several decades, we're going to suffer some losses. Uh, some of us have suffered losses of our parents and you know relatives and and friends and and then eventually you're gonna you know may lose a house or a your career you retire which is not a loss of a career but it's 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 past now and so there's all these losses that take place over time in our lives and we end up you know at the end in a different place than at the beginning and he said what happened at the concentration camps is it squeezed it all down to like three months five months nine months and everybody had to process in their mind, my life just got real short, real fast, and I've lost everything. I've lost my home. I've lost my country. I've lost my family. I've lost my, my career plans, my goals in life. Everything's gone. And uh, he said it caused them to have to process differently um, in, in all of that. And I just want to say that's a similar reality to what we have. We just have a lot longer to, to meditate on it, Right. Uh, I mean, unless you're in a traumatic car crash or something, you have a lot longer to meditate on how life's going to go for you and the pieces that are going to slowly be changed and, and end in a different way. We have a long time to do that. But if you didn't have a long time to do that, consider for a minute if you didn't know that life was going to go on for 10 more years or 15 more years, I'd like you to think about it this way. How would your life be different if you knew two years from now, exactly two years from this day, if you knew Jesus was going to come back and end all of this? I mean, everything changes in two years, and everybody has to face the eternal judge, and you know, if you, God's coming in, and Jesus comes and takes us off the earth, or however you see the kingdom coming about, whatever your theology fits with that. You know, I see Christ coming back and taking us with him and all that. But if you think that's going to happen, if you knew for sure, I was at a conference this weekend here locally and and I had a pastor give me a a concept from a passage I've never seen before. Um, And he said, I know it's not written in the scriptures about the timing of it all, but I just want to show you this passage and let you hear in a different way. And it blew my mind as he shared it. And uh, he said, "If, if, if all that were to fit in some sort of theology, 2031... And he said, I'm not saying it's 2031. I'm just saying that that would look like that. And I'm like, man, 2031, that's coming right up here. It's amazing how time flies, right? But if if you just knew if it was literally two years from now, 2021, and Jesus was going to come back on on the same day as today, but two years from now, how would that change your life? You know? I mean, what would change for you? You go take out bigger loans for sure. <laughs> it's like I can I can borrow against the world now, man. I got I only got only got to pay a couple of years on it and just kind of stay out of trouble with them, and we're good, right? You go buy you a really great car and never have to make the payments on it, right? You know, get get six months free interest or whatever free payments, and then then I don't have to finish paying it off because I know in two years the Lord's coming back. It's interesting to think about that. You know, I can max out all your credit cards. You know, don't tell don't tell uh, Dave Ramsey I said that, but. And cut that from Dave Ramsey's picture. But you know what I'm saying? You, you, there's there's ways to think about it. You go on more vacation. Maybe you just go ahead and retire. I'm done. You know what? 
There will be no more work from this guy. Just going to live, hang out with my family. I'm going to go fill out my bucket list, everything I've been wanting to go, places I've been wanting to go see, and things I've been wanting to do. I'm going to just kind of knock those down the list, right? All of that says, as we think about it, here's what I am involved in and what I want to do. But if you think about the Lord coming back in two years, there's an eternal, you know, just condense it all back down. There's an eternal moment that's going to happen two years from now. There's an eternal moment that's going to happen. And that's a very different concept. The, the, the person that you put on that note in two years, something's got to change. Something's got to change for that person. Or the person you put on that note is going to die in hell. A place that the Bible says where, where the suffering never ends. The person, I want you to look at your card for a minute. Matter of fact, I'd like you to, to share your card. Josh and Jay are going to walk around and uh, pick your cards up. And we're going to tape them to these chairs. That's what the chairs are for. Let's see how many names we can get on chairs. Just just take a little piece of tape. Tape it to the chair. So you're, you're going to need a bunch, a bunch more of that. So I'll collect all these up. If you have a name of a lost person, I just the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to visually... I've been trying to figure out how to get your brain to engage a little differently in some services. And so this is a, vis- this is a giant visual aid that uh, Josh and Josh helped bring in for me this morning. And we're going to tape your card to one of these chairs. Because I'd like you, while we're talking, to picture your person or friend. Um, and here's mine. I'd like you to picture your person or friend in one of these chairs in church with you. Right? Just I'd like you to visually see them underneath this message and think about eternity with that with or without that person. Right? So it kind of kind of brings it to reality. And while they're doing that, I'm going to talk to you about the first century disciples. Um, we we tend to think and I do this a lot, I, I'm a lot like the disciples and they're a lot like me and I got a lot of you know goober in me as I call them the goober disciples. And so I tend to relate to them, and maybe maybe I move them into my century in my thinking. But I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind the tape for you for a minute this morning. Just tape them to the chairs to the back of the chair. It'd be great. Um, I'm gonna rewind the tape for you and let you hear. Here's what the disciples were thinking all along, while Jesus is teaching and talking and and doing miracles. He did a series of miracles that that were exactly prophesied from the Old Testament. Um, that Messiah is going to need to be able to raise people from the dead. Well, he did that twice. Right? He raised a little boy, and then he raised Lazarus. Um, it doesn't matter. They'll figure it out. So they've, got, they've got the numbers, and they can do math pretty, pretty fast in their head, I hope. So if not, we'll dock their pay. So <laughs> you're right. But here's, here's the thing. The disciples were imagining... Uh, Jesus as their, here's the word, redeemer, right? What do you use that word for? What do you redeem? It's weird to me. What do you redeem? Coupons. That's what we redeem. (laughs) We've really sunk down in our society, by the way. We just redeem coupons. That's all we know how to redeem, right? It's the only thing I can think of. I'm like, yeah, that's how we use the word. The word has enormously different meaning to the disciples. The first time it's ever used is when uh, God teaches about how Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. 
by Moses. God called Moses as the redeemer of Israel. And Moses uh, went in and faith. Listen to what he did now. It's important because the Jews would have heard this story 10 million ways, 10 million times. He went in and he, he wrestled with the Pharaoh and kept telling the Pharaoh, my God's better than your God. My God's bigger than your God. Don't mess with my God. I mean, it's all summary statements, but it's, you know, you really don't want to. And then eventually God just showed up and showed off and, and overpowered Egypt and the Pharaoh, who was the world leader at the time. Egypt is the world leader. And God said, let them go or it's going to cost you all your children. And boom, there's this huge moment of Passover. And Israel, Pharaoh turns them loose, and now he's going to chase them. And in the process of God redeeming Israel to their promised land, right, where they're going to become eventually a world ruler, and eventually in the process, God destroys the army of Egypt. And that's called the redemption of Israel out of Egypt. So in the mindset of a a young Jew, or even, even a fisherman Jew like Peter, Redemption was, we get on top of everything now. We're the rulers, and everybody else is subservient to us. And the Messiah is coming back. When Jesus comes back, He is going to rule and reign. That's all in the songs of the Old Testament. He's going to rule and reign. There's a little Bible verse that occurs in Luke chapter 24. Uh, There's guys on the Emmaus Road. Right? There's these two, two guys on the Emmaus Road, and they are uh, walking. It's, it's a great resurrection story. If you haven't read this um, since it's the week after Easter, highly recommend you just go back and read Luke 24, the story of the Emmaus Road. Right. So here's, here's what happens with the story of the Emmaus Road. Jesus is resurrected, and he's, on a, he's just walking with these two guys that are... Uh, talking about the events that have just taken place. Now, the Bible says in Luke uh, 24 that their eyes, and one translation says the eyes of their heart, were darkened so they could not see who Jesus was. They didn't recognize him as Jesus, even though they consider themselves his followers. Very important. They consider themselves his followers, but they, they didn't recognize him. And, and he's walking along. He's... he's slowly walking along with them. They're having these conversations. And the conversation is about, you know, I can't believe what just happened. And he's like, what are you talking about what happened? You know, now he is what happened, <laughs> right? Um, and they're like, no, no, no. He's, it's, it's you know, very different. And, and they're trying to tell him that there was this guy. And here's what they say in Luke 24. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. And he's like, and they're like, here's the news that just came out today. Some lady, and they literally say kind of like this, some crazy ladies are running around saying he's disappeared and he's alive again. They're like, well, that'd be crazy, you know, and they don't get it at all. There's this whole story in Luke 24 where they're having this conversation with Jesus, and then if Jesus actually acts like he's going to keep on walking when they get to the place they're going to stay the night, and they talk him into staying, and, you know, he sits down at the table with them, and he breaks the bread at the table. He sits down and breaks the bread with them. And that's when it says their eyes were opened. They saw him. And then the cool part says, then he just disappeared, literally out of the room, disappeared. 
That'd be freaky, <laughs> right? That's just a crazy, crazy moment. But here's what, here's what I want you to hear in that. These guys thought the Redeemer had come. And when, when everybody laid down their palm branches a week before the, the crucifixion of Christ and his arrest and trials, when they laid down those palm branches, blessed is he who comes in the name of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're literally hailing the new king. And you know what the king's going to do? He's going to conquer the enemy. Who's the enemy of Israel that day? Rome. All these Roman soldiers and oppressive Roman people. Rome is ruling the world. And our king has finally come. And by the way, we know he's our king because he feeds us all the time. He tells us these incredible stories that sort of blow our mind. And he can raise people from the dead and heal the lame and open the eyes of the blind. And only the coming king promised could do that. So here comes our Redeemer, our Redeemer. And then all of a sudden, like the guys on the Mass Road, our Redeemer was put on a cross by Rome, and he didn't fight. He didn't resist. He didn't take charge of anything. He literally gave himself to them and died. So that three days of, we don't know if he's alive or dead, or he is dead, dead, is freaking him out, but now he's up and, and he's walking around talking to him. And guess who's still in charge? Rome. You understand why the disciples have to process things a million percent different than they had before? See, they thought Jesus was coming back. They thought that God was going to confront uh, and defeat evil in Rome. And that the suffering Savior was going to suffer in a battle but defeat Rome. The enemy was sin, which is in all men, Romans, Gentiles, Greeks, Asians, Americans, homosexuals, transgender people, libertarians, Democrats, Republicans. The enemy that Jesus came to defeat is the sin in us. He came to rescue humanity and the disciples in Israel, I promise you, they were convinced one day we're going to be on top of Rome. We get it, man. He is our king. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden he's in trials and they're thinking he'll show us up up at the trials. Didn't do that. Remember Peter's going to, I'll just start the army, start the war down with his sword in the garden, right? And Jesus goes, no, that's not how we're doing this battle. See, Jesus knew that to win the battle, the real battle for what he wanted to win, which was over sin in humanity, he's going to have to suffer and die. It's exactly the opposite of how you win a war. People that die don't win wars, do they? Ever. Ever. Jesus won by dying. And so, I mean, here are these guys that have thought all along, here's how it's going to go, here's how it's going to go, here's how it's going to go. And it doesn't go that way at all. And then, he, then he's risen, and he's just popping into their room and talking to them. He just pops into the upper room and has to talk to them. Hey, there's my hand. See it? Check it out. Hey, are y'all getting this yet? He, and he's saying, anybody catching up with what's happening here? It's not like you thought, is it? No. You know, Rome's still in charge. And so what does he tell them? New commandment. Here's what I want you guys to do. Go into all the world and tell the gospel. Tell what I've done. Go into all the world. And tell what I've done. What had he done? 
He hadn't conquered anything, had he? Oh, he had. He conquered the worst enemy of all mankind, Satan and our sin nature. It's conquered by him. That's not what the disciples were hoping for. But now they're processing. And as they slowly begin to process it, they start hearing these words Jesus would say like, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you and hate you. Bless those who curse you. They're thinking, well, once we get on top, man, when, when Rome's underneath our foot, there won't be anybody cursing us. He's like, that's not how that's going to go. So you need to re- rewind those words again. Love your enemies. Have no thought of putting yourself in charge of people. Live humbly. If somebody asks you to carry their equipment, you carry it two miles, not just one. Remember, all his teaching was, was you have to address the human condition with love. That's the real relationship that's damaging is sin, and God needed to solve that. So I just want you to consider Peter for a minute. Uh, we're going to go to 1 Peter if you want to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He's the first disciple Jesus ever called, one of the early disciples that he called. He, uh, there's a, a great monologue. Uh, I'm not sure what you call that, but it's a, uh, John in Exile. It's a film uh, that's just a monologue of one guy telling the whole story of John's life. It's phenomenal to watch, by the way. I love it. And... Uh, but he says in there, he talks, he's, there's a guy, Dean, uh, Dean Jones, yeah, from, from uh, all the Disney stuff. He's portraying John, and he says, um, he's portraying John the Beloved, and he's talking about Peter, and he says he was a walking bundle of outrageous extremes. He said nobody could love Jesus better, and nobody could frustrate Jesus better than Peter. And that's just truth when you read it. Because at one point, Jesus is asking Peter, asking the disciples, whom do you say that I am? And Peter's like, oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus' like, good job, Peter. Just a few verses later, he's telling him, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He's the only disciple Jesus ever called Satan. How's that in your fit in your titles? You know, it's on my resume. Jesus called me Satan. Right? Then he's then he's the disciple who actually walked on water, one of the twelve that walked on water with Jesus. You can say he struggled, but man, he walked. Nobody else did that. So um, he's one of his closest disciples. He's one of two disciples that betrayed Jesus, Judas and Peter. That's not a good list to to be known as. Um, He was the first disciple to rush into the empty tomb and and sort of see it all. Um, He quit his ministry at the end of John 20 uh, and 21. Peter quit. He actually says in the Greek, I'm going back to fishing. He was so distraught by his denials. And, and I'm telling you, what was happening in his head of, we're not, Jesus is alive again, but we're not in charge. It's not what I thought. Something's gone wrong. Is, and, and so he's back fishing again, and Jesus has to go help him catch fish because he's obviously a terrible fisherman. Peter, Peter fishes like I do, just all night long catches nothing. So here he is fishing and catches nothing, and, and Jesus on the seashore makes breakfast for Peter. Right? And, and then he calls him back to the same party first met him. Follow me. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, Peter. And Peter becomes this enormously powerful disciple that literally later in the book of Acts, his shadow can pass over a sick man and heal him. His shadow. Right? That's phenomenal. When he preaches, 3,000 and 6,000 people at a time are converted. So for Peter, he had to take something had to completely transform him 
into this laser-focused missile for Jesus out of the resurrection, he had to get his head right about what's really what it's all about. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says these words. Um, Praise be to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? It's on your handout if you need it. Uh, a new birth in, and a living into a living hope through the resurrection. See, the Jewish mindset for generations was that the Redeemer is going to come rescue them from slavery, which in their mind was Rome. But in reality, Peter had to process, wait a minute, we're completely renewed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When he said we have to be new, he means everything in my brain has to change. All of how I picture all of this is going to change now. So I have this new birth, and into an inheritance, I have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, uh, who through faith is uh, are shielded by God's power. So all these are promises. We're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have uh, to suffer, have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though gold is refined by fire. Your faith can be proved genuine, may result in the praise and the glory of of Jesus Christ uh, when it's revealed. So here's this incredible teaching by Peter that I'm not going to expound to you. I'd love for you to just grind it out sometime yourself to see what's there. But he talks about this new birth. we're, We're all new in Christ. All the old stuff needs to go. What was the old stuff for Peter? First of all, he really hated Rome. He hated his enemies. He hated them. I don't know if you remember in the New Testament, there had to be these conversations with with Peter and Paul and the disciples and James about going to the Gentiles. Peter's like, this is for the Jews. This is for our people. He's all stuck in it. And then Jesus, you know, has he has his dream and lets down a sheet. You know, he has the pork chops and the ribs and all the cool stuff that goes with you know, all has one of my favorite little teachings is, you know, God gave, made Peter eat ribs and went, hey, now you get it. Oh, yeah, I get it now. How come we didn't have bacon before? That's awesome. So we should have bacon all the time. So, and then Peter, Peter can see now, this is for everybody. It clicks in his head. It's for everybody. And now he's saying it is for everybody. Everyone needs to be reborn. Even Nicodemus, John chapter 3, didn't understand some of that in his Jewish mind. And Jesus had to wrap his head around a bunch of that. So then he says, we have this living hope. Please know this. The hope that you have is not static or stagnant or flat or just there. It's alive. Your hope, if it's in Christ, is alive. It's full of life. Your hope gives you life and gives other people life. I don't know if you've ever been around people that were struggling. I mean, they're very depressed and very not doing very well at all. And, and when you get with them, and the Lord gives you like a revelation to talk to them, and so as you're, as you're just comforting them, you're just trying to say something nice, and then all of a sudden you realize you said something that was more important than you ever thought of in your whole life. Remember? You ever done that? Where you're talking to somebody, you're trying to encourage them, and you just say something that's very spiritual. You know, it's like, wow, that was not good. I should write that down. 
You know what that is? It's a living hope in you that's being offered in life to them in their dark place. And then eventually they'll turn right back around and do it for you when you're in a dark place. That's how the body of Christ is supposed to work. And Peter's saying, we've been given a living hope. Romans 5, Paul says it's a hope that will never disappoint. When you hope in Christ, you'll never be disappointed. You can't be. Because he's won everything. He conquered all of sin and grave and death. And then we have this heavenly inheritance he talks about. He uses the analogy of this inheritance that we have in heaven. Kind of like an account that we have in heaven. Uh, It's the basis of his hope. And he says, by the way, your account in heaven cannot spoil. You're making payments in heaven now that cannot spoil. They cannot be fade. They cannot perish. They're always going to be protected and cared for by him. And it's not that you're going to go get them. It's that he's going to, the picture in the text is actually he's going to bring them back to you as your inheritance of what what you've accomplished for him. Uh, He's going to bring that stuff back to you. And then fourth, he says, we can prove our faith. We prove our faith when we choose joy in our trials. We prove our faith when we choose joy in our trials. Today, um, your your trials look a little different than what first century guys did. Um, Josh did a great uh, blog a, a few few months ago, uh, maybe a month or so ago, um, about the stress that's on the current generation, the millennials, versus the stress that's in like the GI generation and the boomers and the builders, the guys that helped put our country together and raise us up to the you know place we are. And the article is fantastic because you know those guys were worried about not having a job. You know, not being able to have enough income to make it. They're worried about polio and nuclear disasters happening. You remember in the 60s when everything was about, is somebody going to press a bomb and we're all going to disappear and be fried, all that? That was the worries of the people in those generations. Now, right, the generations are worried, the the, the younger folks, they're worried about their phone not having Wi-Fi. That's horrible, by the way. I can't imagine how you could ever survive that. Um, they're they're worried about you know they're worried about not being able to see a series on Netflix that they want to watch because the Wi-Fi is down, right? I mean that's just tragic. And their worries are all so much simpler. <laughs> but I want to just rewind the tape way back because I want to tell you that the nuclear thing that we used to worry about, you know, which was probably pretty serious is a lot closer to what Peter worried about every second of his life. When Peter followed Christ devoutly, everywhere he went, somebody was watching him teach and talk, taking notes and taking it back to Rome or to the devout Jews that are trying to kill him. Everywhere he went. And everywhere he went, and he, he preached to thousands at a time. Read the New Testament, read Acts. Thousands at a time. In that crowd, there's dozens of people taking notes, spies, taking notes, so Peter could eventually be captured and killed, literally executed. He was, he was executed as a martyr for not stopping and preaching the gospel. All he had to do was stop. Just stop teaching and we won't execute you. Nope, can't do it. Stop telling people about the gospel. Nope, can't do it. That's passion. And all of the disciples have it the day after the resurrection. Man, once, or a few days, a few weeks after the resurrection, Christ ascends into heaven and he says these words to him. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And I want you to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and tell the world, Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, wait a minute, Lord. 
the, the Jews are mostly right here in Jerusalem. Yeah. It's not about the Jews anymore. It's about everybody. I didn't come to save the Jews. I came to save the Gentiles. By the way, if you're a Gentile today, I don't see any Jews here. If you're a Gentile today, you, you can just celebrate that moment because Jesus told the disciples, don't you keep this to us. It's to everybody. It blew their minds. They're like, wait a minute. I thought you were going to make us the rulers of the world. He goes, I am. My way. And how do you rule the world? You love them while you suffer. You endure hard times and suffering. You let them nail you to a cross and you tell them you forgive them while you're being nailed to the cross. Peter, you let them nail you to the cross and you tell them you're never going to renounce. In fact, you love Jesus so much, you don't want to be crucified this way. You want to be crucified upside down so that you don't even look like a Jesus to anybody. You want Jesus to get all the glory and you will not renounce your faith even if they crucify your wife first. Apostle Peter, they crucified his wife before him and he said, I cannot renounce this truth. I know he's the resurrected Christ. I know he called me to tell people about his death, burial, and resurrection and that he loves them enough to die for them. He was, he was passionately missional about all that. And slowly but surely as a church body, all of church has gotten sort of soft and fat. And I mean, it's just grievous to me that, that these people that we're listing here, they're going to go to hell. They're going to go to hell. Let me just ask you this. If you knew Jesus was going to come back Tuesday, not two years, but Tuesday. Now, I'm definitely going to go buy a car this afternoon, <laughs> right? Now, if you knew he was coming back Tuesday, you've got this afternoon, all day Monday, and Tuesday morning until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and he's coming back. You know? You, you cutting any grass that, during that weekday, Kendall? Monday's grass day? Nope. Not cutting grass. You're hanging out with your family? Probably. Collecting up your family and you're trying to check off on everybody? But wouldn't you be, wouldn't you be almost grabbing people by the collar? Wouldn't you be? Sort of, sort of like way more intense when you're you know, at the store picking up whatever you need? Or wouldn't you be way more intense? Like that's how the disciples lived every second of their life after the resurrection. It's like, oh, I got to tell you this. You've got to hear this. Well, you know, people are watching. You're going to get. You're going to. You're probably going to get arrested for telling me. Okay, <laughs> you got to hear this. And when I get arrested, I'm going to go tell the people in jail. By the way, because they got to hear it. Then I'm going to tell my enemies. They have to hear it. I don't care who who it is. I have to tell. All of a sudden, somebody sucked all the life out of the Christian culture in America to where we're scared to death to tell anybody because we might offend them. You think hell's going to offend them? I'm positive hell's going to offend them way worse than my words to ask them to change. My, the, the lady that's on my card, one of the ladies on my card, I, I've been witness to her for almost 15 years now. And, and just slowly chipping away. She keeps telling me she has this deal with God. And I said, man, God doesn't make those kind of deals. I know you think that's cool. Because you have this prayer life that somehow you think is that but there's no deal with him you have to give your life over to him or you're not his and your behavior and your lifestyle is not his it's just clear so i just really want you to hear today these people matter 
And, and it, we should live as if the resurrection happened yesterday and He's coming back tomorrow. We should live our life that way. When you meet people and hear people talk and when you think about your family or your friends, your neighbors, and you know they're not saved, something's got to change for us. And we have to get much more involved in reaching out. Peter could boldly confront people with the gospel. He was willing to risk it. Risk it. I taught, I taught a series a while back called Risky Faith. And I just think we've given up on risking anything anymore. Nobody wants to offend somebody or hurt their feelings or, or even you're afraid of the shame. You know, they may say something that hurts your feelings, so I don't want my feelings hurt. So we're all very passive. And I, I just want you to think about the people who, who are on these chairs. These are your friends sitting on the chairs, right? These are your friends. They're your friends sitting on the chair up here. And one day... At the great white throne, they're either going to be on your side or the other side. There's, there's a split down the middle, goats and sheep. And Jesus says to all one side, or it's actually the right side, I'm left-handed, so I'll go that way naturally, but it's the right side. He says, come in, into this blessing eternal with me. Come be a part of all that I've planned for you for all eternity. I've wanted you to live in peace and joy, tranquility, where there's no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more sickness. To the other side, he's going to say, you guys go into eternal damnation where there's no, no rest from the torment. Your friend's going to be on one side or the other. They're either going to be standing next to you going, thank you, or they're going to be over there cursing. I'm asking you, what holds us back from making some conversations and efforts, from, from sending emails and notes and texts, forward them sermon notes or videos or something find a way to share the gospel with them every chance you can do, do you know that the lord's not coming back tuesday by the way i just threw tuesday out there but do you know that he's not coming back anybody have a clue like lord told me it's not gonna be till wednesday no do you know that he's not coming back this afternoon yeah could be before we finish the message seems like i know it seems like i'm never going to finish but Truth is, you guys don't know what's going to happen. And we live sort of casual, like, oh, well, okay. You know, it's like, it's like the people in the camp. There's, there's this apathy that's eating us up. And it's breaking my heart as a pastor that, that I think we're probably one of the strongest loving churches I've ever been a part of. There's a community of love here and grace and fellowship and an understanding of one another, uh, that, that we fellowship well, and we take care of each other. And then I go, wait a minute, there's all these other people we're supposed to be caring for, aren't they? And I, I just guessed today when I thought about putting those cards out. I thought, well, maybe nobody in our church family knows any lost people. Maybe that's our issue. <laughs> maybe the Lord's let us have all saved friends. And then I went, no, that's not true. We've got lots of lost friends up here. Some of them have four and five names on them, Right? Do they matter to you? Will you do me a favor on your handout today? Will you write the same names that you wrote to, to me? I'd like to, to collect these cards up and make them part of my prayer time. Okay? So I'm going to be praying for, I don't know whose cards and whose handwriting it is. But I'm going to be praying for these people as your pastor. But you know what I'm praying for is that you make a difference to them. Talk to them. 
Show them a video. Ask them what they think about a YouTube that you found that's got some measure of God's grace and, and gospel in it or, or you know, an end time, whatever you need to do. Find some way to connect with them. I'm going to pray that specifically. And I'd like on your piece of paper, I'd like you to write those same names down and just keep it with that deal. You have a new and living hope. You're supposed to be on fire with that like Peter. It's just going to take some work to do that, isn't it? Let me tell you what it's going to take. You've got, you got to get uncomfortable. I'm sorry. I hate that for you because we love our comfort, man. We're sitting in an air-conditioned building with really cool LED lights and padded pews. And we got our air-conditioner car that we drove here in. And we go home to our air-conditioner home and all be real comfortable, right? But we got to get uncomfortable with the to, to share the gospel. And I'm sorry that's true. I don't know how to make it more correct for you, but you got to risk it or hell awaits all of these people. I just think when, when we stand before Christ, maybe we'll get together as a little church. You know, maybe there'll be a little north side circle and we'll be holding our hands and going, hey man, good to see you. I'd like those people to be with us, wouldn't you? They're your friends. They're people God's put on your heart in a church service that was about God coming back tomorrow. They're the person you wrote the name of. You don't think God's holding you responsible to at least have a conversation. By the way, you don't have to lead them to Christ. You just have to have a conversation. The Holy Spirit does all the work. You have to have the conversation. And you can mess up the conversation. I'm just finishing out by telling you, you don't have to say it perfectly. I get all these people, I don't know how to share. Yeah, you do. Just tell them what Jesus means to you, what he did for you. Say anything and see what happens. And if you bumble it all up and say, I don't even know how to... I don't even know the verse where it says you're a sinner and you got to trust Christ. I don't know any of that. You know people that do right here, right? There's a bunch of us in here that could go, oh, you, you're blanked out on that. But here's the, remember the verse? And then we can help you with it. And you can go back and tell them or you can bring them to us and we'll help them. Either way, you're supposed to tell them. That's why they're on your heart. That's how they got on these cards. And that's why they're sort of virtually sitting in these seats behind me. So you see them and go, that's my job. If he's coming back this week, I don't know. I'd love that, by the way, if he'd come back this week. That'd be killer. <laughs> if he'd come back this week, whew, you know, all the loans go away, all the debt, you know. Whew, yeah. I don't have to figure out how to paint the building. All that stuff's gone. Just, Lord's all yours now, right? I'd love it if he'd come back. But if he's going to come back, these people are, matter. I don't think any of you want them to go to hell, do you? You don't want these people to go to hell. You wrote their names down. But you know they're lost.